Greetings and welcome to episode 49 of Beyond Hua Xia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is the invention of Manchu Kuo. As I suggested at the end of our last episode on Micronesia, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. What I mean by that is that when Japan actually finds a way to not sort of work through various intermediaries, you know, oh, we're running a joint stock company here, uh, this is just a 25-year lease or a 99-year lease over the Liaodong Peninsula, Dalian, this sort of stuff, when they actually find a formal way to uh, slice off a huge chunk of Chinese territory um, and say this is no longer uh, either on paper or in reality this is not a part uh, of the Republic of China anymore. Um, at that point, um, you have pretty much you know, pushed the boundaries beyond the point of no return. Uh, everyone now uh, in China knows that war with Japan, once they actually take away Manchuria and turn it into this thing called Manchukuo, which we're going to discuss today, uh, that war is inevitable. Sooner or later, Japan's going to have to be dealt with. Uh, it's only a matter of time of when. Uh, we, it's only a matter of determining when do we think we're strong enough that we can actually confront Japan and uh, be them in battle or at least raise the cost of battle enough that they'll negotiate on terms that are favorable to China. Um, but everyone knows now in China, all educated Chinese diplomats, intellectuals, students and whatnot, um, when Manchu Kuo is formally proclaimed in 1932, um, that uh, war will happen sooner or later with Japan uh, because they have they clearly uh, have territorial designs on taking China apart for their ends. All right. Now, uh, before we get to the invention of Manchukuo, all right, this really fascinating uh, and somewhat bizarre historical phenomenon, uh, which only exists for 13 years. Uh, before we get to that, we need to, you know, again, start with a little bit of background of uh, what takes place in Manchuria before uh, we get the invention of this new independent uh, supposed nation state. Um, now, some of the stuff we've covered before, we can move a little bit quicker than usual, but other things like the South Manchurian Railway Company, we'll have to go into a little bit of detail to understand uh, what Japan already has on the ground before they decide to take the next step, uh, go to the next level. Now, we already have covered in previous episodes the lack of historical integration uh, of northeastern China, of the Manchurian region, um, uh, uh, prior to the arrival of Japanese and Russians who were intent on gaining influence in the area. All right, Northeast Asia does not have a strong and ancient, you know, Han Chinese pedigree like the Heartland does, like the Yellow River Valley, the Yangtze River Valley, you know, all these areas from Beijing in the north to Guangzhou in the south. You think, oh, that's the agricultural Han Heartland. All right. Uh, Manchuria doesn't have that. Until the 1880s, as we talked about before, the Qing court in Beijing deliberately circumscribed Han migration to Manchuria. Um, they actually said, you know, the, the emperors uh, were of Manchu heritage, a semi-nomadic uh, uh, group that came from uh, Manchuria. Um, that's why in English we have the term Manchuria uh, to indicate that this is where the Manchus came from. Uh, that term actually, there, there isn't really an equivalent to that in Chinese. In Chinese, the Northeast is usually referred to as the Northeast, Dongbei, or uh, the Northeastern three provinces, uh, Dongbei, Sansheng. All right, they don't really use an equivalent of Manchuria. And part of that is the trauma of uh, the psychological scar of how the Japanese uh, manipulated the use of the word Manchu um, with relation to a plot of territory, and uh, they don't want to use that word again. Regardless, the Manchu court in Beijing decided that, you know, we need to preserve a pure Manchu heartland. They idealized the region themselves. Manchuria wasn't as pure as they thought. It wasn't just Manchus. There were lots of other groups. And in fact, the very identity of Manchus was, as we know, because we, uh, we have the episode on the Yamato race and whatnot, uh, we know race is a situational state of mind. It's something that we invent. And the Manchus actually uh, uh, quite baldly artificially invented a Manchu identity to bring together many different tribes who had previously been known as Jurchen tribes. And then when they uh, take over the uh, central heartland of, uh, of uh, China in the 17th century, at some point they adopt a new name to trying to unite all these different tribes under a new moniker, under a new identity. Um, and some scholars believe that in order to appeal to uh, uh, the Chinese heartland, they may have even adopted a, uh, a version of the um, uh, uh, 
Buddhist bodhisattva, a Buddhist deity known as Manjushri, um, and said, you know, this is a religion that's very much venerated in China, um, and perhaps they uh, wanted to associate themselves with a Buddhist deity. Um, so Manjushri um, in Manchu, the word uh, Manchu is actually pronounced Manju, uh, so it's, a little, it's even a little bit closer to Manjushri. Um, but eventually, the Manchus then, uh, you know, they have this idea that this is our pure homeland. It was only Manchus who have been there since time immemorial. Um, and we want to preserve this. The Han should not be allowed to migrate there. Um, because if they do, there will be so, uh, so, so many of them that they will overwhelm the Manchu identity and we won't have the land of our ancestors anymore. It'll be, <clears throat> it'll be tr transformed into someone else's land. Now, of course, this all changes um, in the last couple decades of the 19th century, in which the Qing court realizes there is a major threat both from the Russians and from Japan. Um, uh, Japan chipping away at from, from the east, from the maritime direction, from Korea, from Taiwan, the Ryukyus, Russia to chipping away uh, at Mongolia, at Manchuria. Um, you know, we need to colonize this land um, and, you know, have sort of a demographic uh, majority there that the Manchus actually can't really fulfill anymore. There aren't that many Manchus uh, to be able to fully populate Manchuria to the extent that you need to lend substance to the idea that this is, um, you know, a part of China. And plus, even if you had a lot of Manchus, um, it, 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 it wouldn't be the same thing. You want to be able to say this is Chinese territory to foreigners who oftentimes equate the Qing, the multi-ethnic Qing empire with a Chinese empire, a Chinese dynasty, which really it's not. But regardless, um, they decide strategically, all right, now we need to open the floodgates to Han migration. Uh, otherwise, the, the Russians are going to come in. They're already starting some of their own cities. They're founding their own cities from scratch. Harbin, one of the major cities, will be founded by the Russians. Um, we need to have our, you know, a substantial demographic presence, both in the cities and in the rural areas. And that's when they open the floodgate to Han, mostly from the northern parts of China from Shandong, uh, the Shandong Peninsula, uh, Anhui province. These are the poor Han migrants who are then encouraged and oftentimes given tangible help to go up to Manchuria and try to uh, make a living in the uh, agricultural sector up there. Now, even though you get a lot of these new, poor, recent migra uh, migrants in the last couple decades of the 19th century, uh, you're still not getting a long tradition. You can't invent a tradition of sort of educated, politically engaged cultural elites who have some sense of, you know, autonomy, that uh, cultural and political autonomy that stretches way far back. Um, you know, you're, you're, the region has only recently been transformed into provinces that are similar to all the other provinces in China. So even though they do have educated civil service exam officials who are being sent there now, they too are very recent migrates, uh, migrants, migrates, what a, <laughs> very recent migrates, uh, very recent migrants. All right. And then even though, of course, that the Manchus uh, demographically don't have much of a presence there anymore. Um, they've mostly relocated to Beijing and many of the cities where they have Manchu garrisons in the uh, uh, inner Chinese provinces. Uh, the region still does have this association with Manchus, that it's supposed to be the Manchu homeland. So all these factors mean that the re uh, northeastern China uh, at the turn of the, of the 20th century was ripe for new claims of appropriation, chiefly by the Russians and the Japanese, to being a new cultural elite that is bringing modernity to Manchuria. Um, and they saw themselves in competition with uh, only very recently arrived Chinese elites uh, who were also claiming the same thing, but the Russians and Japanese are saying, no, 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 we can claim to usher the people of this land into uh, uh, m uh, prosperous modernity better than the Chinese can do. Now, as I said, the Russians actually ended up establishing some of the first large non-Chinese towns. Harbin, today pronounced in Chinese, Harbin, um, was a town founded by the Russians and still has, you know, the old colonial Russian-European style architecture in Harbin, which is a big tourist draw today as well. Um, the Russians also established the first railroads. Remember that China Eastern Railroad and then eventually the Spur Line South to Dalian, uh, the South Manchurian Railroad. These, these, these are projects begun by the Russians to facilitate quicker, more streamlined uh, beeline access to either Vladivostok, right, to the northeastern edge of uh, Korea, or to get to uh, Dalian on the Liaodong Peninsula. 
Um, so, you know, the railroads, the big towns, uh, huge Russian influence in the last couple decades of the 19th century and early decades of the 20th century. All right. And the preference uh, for both the Russians and the Japanese would be to exert their colonial influence, not through outright annexation, uh, but sort of through joint companies, uh, you know, sort of the Dutch East Indies models, the British East India Company, these sort of things have these uh, uh, companies that are run by Russians or run by Japanese. Um, and they'll be making profits and they'll be getting involved in the local economy, uh, but they'll also have some subtle political connections behind the scenes that will allow us to have a pretext to intervene politically if the, you know, things ever come to that point. Um, and because these companies have such large investments in Manchuria, um, and it's such a strategically important borderland area, uh, it was easy to acquire permission, especially after 19, uh, 1895 and 19, uh, 1901, after the Boxer War, it's easy to acquire permission to station, quote unquote, guards along all the railroad facilities and the factories that you've built in these towns. Uh, you know, we need to protect ourselves. So we should be able to have our, our soldiers with weapons uh, patrolling the area. And of course, once you get to that point, it's very dangerous because you can uh, manufacture pretexts for all kinds of things if you want your soldiers to intervene. Now, Japanese influence will also be mediated in Manchuria through one of these sort of joint stock companies. All right, with investors, with a board of directors. It's known as the South Manchurian Railway Company. Uh, if you're reading about this and, you know, scholarly literature and whatnot, the acronym, the shorthand acronym in English is usually the SMR, South Manchurian Railway. In J Japanese, uh, it's often known to, uh, in abbreviated form as Mantetsu. Uh, literally Manchu iron, <laughs> you know, Manchurian iron, uh, iron being the uh, kanji that is short for uh, railroad. Uh, so Mantetsu. Now, Mantetsu is going to be, uh, you know, basically a colony that preserves the pretense of commercial independence without necessarily uh, having a foreign government that controls everything, even though you're going to have uh, for, uh, uh, Japanese government will be involved behind the scenes and will appoint many of the officials uh, uh, who will serve um, on the South Manchurian Railway Company. Nevertheless, you maintain the fiction that this is purely a commercial venture and you just have to have some soldiers uh, stationed in here because we don't trust China to uh, you know, keep this land stable and safe for the sake of business relations. Um, now, uh, when you're thinking about Manchuria and what the Japanese are going to do there, um, uh, you should be uh, comparing it. The most obvious comparison throughout this episode is going to be with uh, Mongolia. All right, immediately to the west, uh, shares an enormous uh, long land border um, with Mongolia as well. During the Qing Empire, there, uh, Mongolia was referred to as uh, two different parts. There was Inner Mongolia, which is today the Inner Mongolian Autonomous Region, um, and then there was Outer Mongolia. Outer Mongolia is basically what is today the Mongolian People's Republic. All right, um, and what's going to happen with Mongolia? is that the Russians during the Civil War will find a pretext to invade Mongolia. They'll say our enemies, the royalist white Russian uh, you know, rivals uh, of us, uh, have taken refuge in outer Mongolia, and uh, that's not okay. These are our mortal enemies. Uh, and they told the Chinese, if you can't go in there and kick the white Russians out, you, that means you're harboring our enemies who are regrouping for a fight uh, against us. We're not going to allow that. Um, and this is the warlord era, unfortunately, for China. And when no, none of the Chinese warlords decide they're going to waste their resources on kicking the white Russians out of outer Mongolia, um, the, Rus the, the red Russians, the Bolsheviks, decide to go in themselves. And they defeat the white Russians. And then they say, you know what? The Chinese clearly aren't capable of taking care of this land and not letting it get involved in uh, international politics to our detriment. So we're going to take over. We're going to take over. Um, and in 1921, that's when they go into Mongolia and they then rule for three years through the traditional spiritual uh, Mongolian leader. Um, and then in 1924, when he dies, they set up a socialist state and they find sort of, you know, uh, a shepherd from a proper poor background um, who's uh, friendly to the Russians. And he becomes the head of the new uh, Mongolian uh, People's Republic. All right. Um, and the Russians are always going to say that uh, this is not a satellite state of the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union. Uh, Mongolia, we went in there uh, to do an altruistic thing of liberating Mongols from Chinese oppression. 
All right, we're liberating the Mongols and helping them achieve their full potential and prosperity. And China was oppressive, they were corrupt, and the Mongols were being pulled down with the Chinese in the modern era, and so we're liberating them. Uh, this is the playbook that Japan will eventually use with Manchuria. Okay, it's going to be a little harder to justify because there aren't as many Manchus as there are Mongols, and Manchus in general doesn't have as you know ancient uh, ethnic pedigree as Mongols do. Uh, but nevertheless, that is exactly the playbook that Japan is going to follow, um, and the two territories are right next to each other. So when we talk about Manchukuo, you can't really talk about how it's going to be manipulated in the 20th century unless you also understand what the Russians did with Mongolia. The only difference, as we'll have occasion to talk about many times during this episode, is that. Russia is on the winning side of World War II, Japan's on the losing side, so Mongolia becomes naturalized and uh, Manchukuo becomes denaturalized and it's seen for the artificial creation that it is, whereas Mongolia will not be and it eventually will obtain its independence fully when the Soviet Union falls in 1991. All right. Now, the South Manchurian Railway Company, uh, as I said, it had the appearance of a private commercial company, um, but inside it had the management and organization of a state-run bureaucracy. It made and dispersed profits to shareholders, but it also ran utilities companies, uh, civil organizations. Um, it oversaw institutions of law. It had its own courts, security, police public health, hygiene, sewers, education, um, and all the top management were, you know, had very close ties with the Japanese government and you couldn't be appointed to a top position in the South Manchurian Railway unless Tokyo approved of it. Okay, the South Manchurian Railway will eventually operate about 700 miles of railroad tracks with liberal buffer zones on either sides, including all the stations and the towns that grow up right next to that station. This is the area this, uh, that, that becomes known as the Kwantung Least Territories. We've talked about that in previous episodes where that name came from. All right. The South Manchurian Railway will eventually manage 105 affiliated towns and it, had, it, it, it built, constructed, and maintained and owned its own tunnels, bridges, schools, parks, administration buildings, hospitals, libraries, storage areas, mines, and factories. Okay, this is, this is a private commercial company that looks a lot like a government when you start to poke your nose around behind the scenes. The South Manchurian Railway would eventually represent four-fifths of all Japanese investment in Manchuria during the 19-teens and the 1920s, all right? That's 50% of all Japanese investments in China as a whole are wrapped up in the South Manchurian Railway Company uh, entity, okay? And the SMR, the Mantetsu, they imported the best, most modern technology, and this sort of stuff gained the admiration of many other foreign governments, and sometimes even reluctantly, the, the educated Chinese who still sometimes traveled up there, okay? One-third of all the Japanese uh, railroad uh, cars uh, were purchased from the United States, which was then considered the world's leader in train technology. We have uh, eyewitness uh, accounts, you know, uh, articles and whatnot of American passengers who went to Dalian and traveled on the South Manchurian Railway, and they said, wow, it feels like I'm riding a train back in the United States. Ah, the ultimate compliment, right? The Americans say that your trains are the best, um, you know, just like ours back home, just like you're going from Detroit to Chicago. Uh, by 1907, there were 23,000 Japanese living in Manchuria. Get ready for this number to balloon. Uh, 23 years later, in 1930, just a little over two decades, that number has uh, uh, increased tenfold. 220,000 Japanese are, are resident within the South Manchurian Railway jurisdiction. Remember, the jurisdiction is not, you don't take all of Northeast China and sort of color it all in red and say, oh, that's all, uh, you know, uh, Kwantung. No. It's this oddly-looking narrow passage uh, that starts in Dalian and the Liaodong Peninsula, and then it's sort of, you know, these towns are ours, this railroad and its buffer zone are ours. That's where all these Japanese are living. 220,000 by 1930. Um, Four-fifths of the total Japanese population in China lived within the South Manchurian Railway jurisdiction. And now the population booms again. By the 1930s, once you have Manchukuo, the Japanese population will balloon to one million Japanese who are living um, in Manchuria. Remember, this is very different than Korea, than Taiwan. There we were dealing with numbers that were half or a fourth 
um, of this number of Japanese settlers or officials and whatnot. And there is lots of literature that has come down to us that I had my students read. It's wonderful stuff of people who lived there or short stories uh, about life in Manchuria, uh, the various cities. Um, you know, then oftentimes they would say you could have such a great life there. There are so many opportunities. Uh, people who, who couldn't make it in Japan, you could go to Manchuria um, and uh, great riches might await you. And you could live entirely within a bubble of speaking Japanese language, you know, going on Japanese railroads and be treated with respect everywhere you went and have opportunities that were not available to anyone else. Okay. Now, the crown jewel of the South Manchurian Railway jurisdiction was the city of Dalian, often referred to in English as Port Arthur. Um, it would become the second largest trading port in China after Shanghai. All right, and that's that's not the case anymore. But you can get a sense of how big and important and prosperous Dalian was. That's on the Liaodong Peninsula. Remember the southern terminus of the South Manchurian Railway. Um, you know, Dalian was was huge. Uh, only uh, uh, after coming after Shanghai in the list of uh, largest trade ports in China. The British journalist Peter Fleming described Dalian as quote a sort of Japanese Hong Kong, very orderly and hygienic and up to date. Note the hygienic modernity. Uh, he has to know. Uh, you can, you know, remember again, it's the idea that you can determine the level of civilization of a place by how clean it is, uh, by what the bathroom experience is like, that sort of thing. From Dalian on the Japanese trains on the SMR, you could travel 435 miles to the to the northern parts of the railway in just 12 hours. That was a bullet train back then. Think, wow, I can go to sleep and wake up and be 435 miles to the north. That was incredible. Foreigners mostly all agreed that the South Manchurian Railway Zone had the best trains, the most comfort, the cleanest cities, and the most excellent hospital facilities everywhere in China, because this is still technically China. And they said, if you can't stay in the Western Treaty Port concessions, if you can't stay with Western hotels and whatnot, the Japanese are a superb second choice. All right, what was once a sparsely settled zone becomes a highly urbanized strip of industrial modernity with lots of factories, lots of mineral extraction industries. All right, this is what Japan had wanted all along. It's next frontier. You didn't really get it in Korea. Taiwan, you got some stuff. Micronesia, you got some stuff, but it's mostly agricultural products. You need those raw minerals, the stuff that helps you create industrial modernity, make planes, make rubber wheels, the things that'll help you win battles, bombs, munitions. You need to dig into the ground for that kind of stuff. You need to have mines, and Manchuria has that in spades. There are implications for this after World War II. Um, what's going to happen is that Manchuria will be the most industrially developed region in all of China because of the Japanese presence uh, by 1945. And when the Chinese Civil War breaks out, there will be a battle to see who can get Manchuria. Because who, uh, whether, you know, if the Chinese Communists can get Manchuria or if Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party can get Manchuria, uh, you'll get access to all the industrial munitions and factories and enterprises that the Japanese had set up. Uh, so it's going to be a huge prize after World War One, uh, World War Two, as well. All right. Now, the South Manchurian Railway uh, uh, Company had its own research department. All right. Like I said, it's it's, 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 its own pseudo-government uh, in disguise. It, had, it, 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 uh, it undertook scientific and economic research in great detail and great depth. Uh, during the time of its existence, we know that there were about 6,000 reports of very high quality that were overseen by research staff of approximately 2,300 people. Gives you a sense of the scale of what's going on here, and these people, if you're in, if you're a Japanese, an educated Japanese in Manchuria working for Montetsu, uh, you were paid well, you had high morale, you bought into the mission that Japan's doing good for the world, and you know this is what we always needed. Japan is by far the best suited country uh, to make use of the resources of Manchuria. How did China have this for so long and neglect it? How is that possible? We're not going to make the same mistake. And you can everywhere you go. Uh, not only are Japanese saying that we're making the best use of this land, hey, the foreigners are saying it as well. The white men are also saying this is impressive. 
Okay, um, so you know much of the stuff, the research that they were undertaking was in support of mining industry, of metallurgy, uh, the mineral extraction industries had a huge recruiting network. It needed manual labor, but for this, if it's uneducated manual labor, unskilled manual labor, then it's fine to bring in Chinese peasants. And there was a whole system in place in which the Japanese South Manchurian Railway Company would actually recruit poor Chinese peasants from northern China, from Shandong. Uh, you you cross the Bohai Gulf, you get to Dalian, and they can put you on a train and send you right up into the mine so you can go into the ground and fill up your lungs with coal and whatnot and all those sort of things so that the Japanese businesses can profit. The other thing that Manchuria will create is not just the uh, you know uh, minerals and mines and this sort of stuff. It will also have the agriculture uh, that supplements the agricultural output surplus that you're getting on Taiwan and Micronesia and to a lesser extent on Korea. Uh, Manchuria also had lots of room uh, to sort of try to develop agriculture and it'll end up producing a ton of soybeans. By the 1920s, Manchuria is producing two-thirds. Two-thirds of what? The world supply. You thought I was going to say China supply, right? No. Uh, or Japan supply. Two-thirds of the world supply of soybeans are coming from Manchuria and passing through Dalian. That's why Dalian's the second largest port after Shanghai. Uh, they have to deal with all those soybeans. Now, in Manchuria, there was constant tensions between the Japanese home government, uh, embodied through the foreign ministry, and the army which had its own governor general uh, that looked after the uh, soldiers. Uh, ostensibly, he's just there to look after the soldiers who were there uh, stationed in Manchuria to, you know, quote-unquote, protect the South Manchurian Railway and all of its towns and citizens and, you know, this sort of stuff. Um, the governor general of the so-called Kwantung Least Territories actually didn't have a whole lot of territory to govern. Okay, it's mostly about power projection through railway guards and South Manchurian Railway police. But the governor general is always pushing to create more buffer zones, saying we don't have a big enough buffer zone. Uh, it, it, it's a wild west world out there, right outside of the, the Montetsu buffer zone. We need to find a way to increase the land that is under our jurisdiction because we don't trust the Chinese. They're, they're, they're corrupt, they're hostile, they're dirty, whatever. Um, we need to uh, increase the land that we actually have control over. So they're always trying to create incidents, exploit incidents, perceive slights, perceived insults from the Chinese, perceived encroachments on our buffer zone, um, and try to, you know, not necessarily work together with many of the local Chinese because you don't want to actually have to work with them. You want to control the land yourself. Now, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs back in Tokyo, however, um, they usually tend to be more conservative. All right. They often prefer diplomacy over action, and you have a bunch of educated, uh, you know, desk clerks back there who are saying, you know what, uh, we need to uh, uh, remind everyone that Manchuria is uh, sovereign Chinese territory. They still have, you know, their own provinces out there. They have their own governors. They have, you know, their warlords at this point. But nevertheless, um, these are, you know, Chinese officials who run the land. Um, and they just have to respect the buffer zone and the least territories that we have. Um, but we are not actually, we don't want to go there. We don't want to go to the point where we're actually taking over this land. Back home, usually the metropole, usually back home at the central government, the diplomats, the people who are running the government are much more conservative. And they're thinking about international backlash. They're thinking about the trouble of, well, if you actually take over this land, what are you going to do then? You know, it's all great fun to to invade territory, and you know that's very exciting. And when you win, it gives you know our, our pride and our country swells and whatnot. But then you got to rule that territory. What are we going to do? Manchuria is huge. We're going to rule this entirely on our own. What a pain in the ass! So the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Tokyo is always trying to say, stop, don't push the envelope, don't, you know, exploit incidents. Um, and if they ever can, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll try to pull back and say, you know what, we already have, our plate is already full. We're making a good profit. Uh, we don't want to bite off more than we can chew. However, when push comes to shove, Tokyo will not repudiate the forward advances of the Kwantung army. All right, and that is a dynamic that we see all throughout the world. Whenever you have a country that has the ability to station troops abroad, uh, back home, internally, you'll see criticism. You'll see uh, people pulling the reins, you know, don't do more than we already said we were going to do. Don't get involved in local disputes. Don't take off more territory. 
don't fight unnecessary wars, um, and oftentimes they'll even criticize the actions of their men in the field. But if those men in the field actually do take a bold action or do get involved in a local dispute and it turns into a war, uh, the home government will almost never repudiate them. The loss of, of, of political face is just it's perceived as being too big, um, and you tend to support them. You tend to support them. We're not going to sell out our boys in the field. Now, this brings us to the creation of Manchukuo. All right. Previously, it's Mantetsu. It's Mantetsu uh, jurisdiction and the least Kwantung territories. A perfect storm of factors will lead to the Japanese repudiation of the status quo under the South Manchurian Railway Company. First, in the late 1920s, you get the, the, the World Economic Depression. All right. The Great Depression will reinforce Japanese fears of vulnerability. All right, the great powers, the great Western powers, all go into protectionist mode, all right, in which they're protecting their country's products. They're protecting their access to resources around the world. All right, what happens, Japanese diplomats are thinking, if we can't get access to resources from Western colonies? What if the Dutch suddenly say, uh, no, we're not selling gutta percha to you. We're not selling rubber to you anymore. Uh, we're not selling oil to you anymore from Indonesia uh, because we need it for our own markets. We need to, we need to protect ourselves now and our own citizens. Um, and we see you as a rival. What happens then? Japan doesn't have any other sources for this. Right? Burma, India, French Indochina, the Philippines. These are Places where there's very valuable resources that Japan can't get anywhere else in Asia. And they're all dominated by Western countries, by Western empires. So Japanese intellectuals are starting to think during the Great Depression, we need to ensure reliable access to strategic resources like oil and rubber and these sorts of things. Uh, no matter what the West decides to do, because if they cut us off, we're screwed. How are we ever going to fight them in war? How are we going to get what we need? And in fact, that's going to be one of the proximate causes of uh, war with the United States in 1941 in Pearl Harbor, um, is the realization that the, the United States is about to put an embargo on many very strategic products and freeze Japanese assets and cut off our access to oil deposits uh, throughout the Pacific Ocean. Um, and then they say, we have to take a preemptive, you know, we have to take matters into our own hand with a preemptive attack before we lose this access to this stuff and take over the lands themselves. Okay. Second, Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party, which we talked about a couple episodes ago, right? We talked about the genealogy of Sun Yat-sen and uh, the Russians giving them support in the Deep South, the Wampoa Military Academy in Guangzhou, Chiang Kai-shek taking over the Military Academy, training the first generation of nationalist officers, um, and then the Northern Expedition in which they finally uh, uh, defeat many of the warlords in southern China and relocate to create a new Chinese capital at Nanjing in 1927. All right. The success of this Leninist party state, Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party, um, in, in central southern China is a very alarming development for Japan because Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party uh, attracts to it the first generation of fully Western-educated, Westernized uh, Chinese intellectuals. Um, and they are very much uh, using the West's discourse of equality and enlightenment against them and say, we are just like you now. Uh, we're fully Westernized. We have, you know, we graduated from Harvard and Yale and Columbia and Oxford, um, and we're bringing China into modernity. We have, we've overhauled our legislative systems, our, you know, our, 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 our prisons, our, our cities have hygienic modernity. Uh, you have no more basis to be treating us the way that you've been treating us for a very long time now. Um, and they say, uh, you know, Chiang Kai-shek's party vows that we're going to take back everything that foreign foreign empires have taken. This is this is open rhetoric. All right, it's it's somewhat hostile uh, from the perspective of the Westerners and the Japanese, um, and they realize that they they have their own army now. The, this army is better trained than before. They're getting Western munitions. They have uh, Russian advisors. Um, this is not the same China that we were pushing around in the 19th century. Okay, um, so the other foreign powers, as we've said before, were generally starting to agree. Once you get the new government in Nanjing in 1927, the other foreign powers generally start to agree to a phased withdrawal of their privileges in China. Let's start talking about the eventual abolition of extraterritoriality, of you know, uh, getting rid of uh, these tariffs or uh, we'll, we'll stop imposing these tariffs on you, this sort of stuff. No more tax-free privileges, whatever it was. 
And they say, we, we need to enter in negotiations for this because we think the Nationalist Party might unilaterally terminate them all on their own. And that's going to be humiliating. Now, the other empires in China can do this. They can weather the loss of their China privileges because, as we said before, they, they have many other territorial holdings throughout the world. Japan cannot. Japan cannot lose its privileged access to the China market. Okay. Um, now, more specifically, the other sort of element to this perfect storm occurs uh, in Northeast Asia, in Manchuria itself. As we said before, um, the SMR, the uh, Governor General, they had hoped to have, you know, a workable relationship with the most important Chinese warlord in the region. Okay, you have to. Uh, because he is the most, he is the biggest, most powerful Chinese official there. Uh, he's not capable of beating you in war or kicking you out, um, but he has a lot of influence and access to resources, and you got to make sure that you're not on hostile terms with him. Um, we talked about before. This man is Zhang Zuolin, Zhang Zuolin, the Tiger of Manchuria, and Japan was working through him, giving him Japanese advisors, some loans, um, you know, the ability to make him stronger than other warlords in China, and in exchange. He then would adopt a fairly uh, accommodating posture towards the South Manchurian Railway and other Japanese interests in his jurisdictions, because they are in his jurisdictions. Um, now, as I said before, uh, the problem with giving Zhang Zolin all of these Japanese resources is that he ultimately is looking towards China, not towards Japan. All right, accommodating Japan is a, a short-term plan for his survival and to get stronger. But ultimately, he's Chinese, and he's interested in the Chinese heartland. Jiang Zoling wants to take over Beijing. Uh, he wants to work together with inner Chinese uh, politicians like Chiang Kai-shek and see how he can maximize his role on the uh, national stage of China. Ultimately, at Japan's expense. Even if he doesn't say that, Japan knows. Sooner or later, this guy is going to turn, turn against us, even if he hasn't done it yet. And so the crisis is immediately precipitated by the stubborn determination of Han warlords like Zhang Zoling to aspire to a national political role. And as we said, in 1928, Zhang Zoling will be assassinated by the Japanese during uh, en route to a trip to Beijing to try and reach an accord with Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party representatives who have gone north from Nanjing to Beijing. Um, he's thinking, I'm, I'm going to obtain a new prominent role in the new government um, and be, you know, still retain a lot of my power, regional power in northeastern China, but also I'm going to pay sort of lip service to the Nationalist Party. Let's go to Beijing and work out how this is going to happen. All right. But he's throwing in his towel uh, with Chiang Kai-shek's new government in Nanjing more than he is the, ja the Japanese. And the Japanese realize that this, that, that this is bad for us, and they blow up his train uh, as he's going to Beijing. Now, uh, unfortunately for Japan, as we said before again, his son, Jiang Xueliang, also decides to lean towards the Nationalist Party and join the Nationalist Party. Okay, when this happens, uh, Japan realizes that there's not going to be a, a eternally pliable powerful Chinese official in Manchuria. Um, and the Kwantung army then begins to think we need, we, 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 we see no option. We need to take over this land for ourselves. Uh, any Chinese intermediary that we work through, even if they're temporarily pliable, they won't remain that way forever. They eventually will have China's interest uh, um, um, closer at hand than Japan's interest. And this eventually leads to what's known as the Manchurian incident in 1931. All right, and then the unstoppable progression to all-out war with China over the next six years. In creating a new state and saying this, you know, Manchuria is no longer a part of China. Uh, it's now the independent state of Manchukuo. In creating independent Manchukuo, Japan, as I said, will join the Soviet precedent. They'll build on the Soviet precedent in trying to redefine China to suit their strategic needs. China, as the Chinese define it, isn't working for us. It's very inconvenient. <laughs> uh, so let's just redefine China uh, in a way that suits us. That's what the Russians did with Mongolia. All right. The only difference is the Soviets naturalized their redefinition of China through victory in World War II, while Japan did not. But the principles of creating Mongolia and Manchukuo are exactly the same, and they're also born of the same sense of an, ex of an existential threat to your empire if we don't take off this piece of land. 
The Russians said we're liberating the Mongols from oppression, uh, feudal oppression, and Chinese imperialist oppression, and we're going to bring them into a prosperous socialist modernity as an independent state that we just advise. Um, and the Japanese said we are liberating Manchus from oppressive Chinese rule. The Chinese are imperialists of their own. They oppress these poor Manchus. This is the land of, you know, we call it Manchuria. Um, and so we're going to allow the Manchus to reclaim the country of Manchus. That's what Manchu Kuo means, the country of the Manchus. It's the exact same basis of this ideal of the nation state. That's how you justify um, uh, you know, creating new plots of land, invading other people's territory in the 20th century. You have to do it on the basis of the ideal of the nation state. We are allowing this nation to realize its natural political right to govern itself. All right. And almost all wars in the 20th century are fought, you know, in some way along these lines. Uh, you might have to twist your words and, you know, uh, do somersaults, uh, linguistic somersaults to try to make it all seem like it's working out well and, uh, and, and, and portray you in the best light. Um, but in the end, in the end, this is how wars are justified. And it's how Manchu Kuo and Mongolia are also justified. Liberation of an oppressed minority from a, a big, evil, outside imperialist power. Now, it's young, educated soldiers in the Kwantung army that will be the driving force behind the change and the creation of Manchu Kuo. Now, these guys are often portrayed as incorrigible fascist militants who betrayed China's more pacifist goals of coexistence. That's certainly the label that'll be slapped on them after 1945 in official narratives that condemn, uh, you know, Japan's path to war and lead to those questions that I was talking about many episodes ago. What went wrong? What did Japan do? What went wrong? Because if they fought the United States in this war, something must have gone wrong because no one in their right mind would pick a fight with us. What, what, who would want to fight with us? We're wonderful. So something must have gone wrong in their march towards Western modernity. What went wrong? Ah, young fascist militants who hijacked the state. This is totally incorrect. The frontline instigators in northeastern China were educated young officers who most bought in to Japan's modernist rhetoric of Asian enlightenment and the noble burden of bringing the yellow race higher up. Okay, it's Japan's duty as the only advanced Asian nation that can stand up to the, the white Westerners. It's our duty to bring you into modernity, and we're doing our best. And we're spending lots of resources on you guys. And sometimes you're so ungrateful and you don't realize it's for your own good. But we're doing this for ultimately your good. To bring you up to our level of civilization, modernity, and prosperity. Now, of course, as we saw in our last episode, there were ugly manifestations of this. We talked about the adventures of Dan Kichi in Micronesia. There absolutely were very ugly versions of this. But there were also more sophisticated and genuinely progressive versions in which many Japanese went out into the colonies, went out into the empire and truly believed, yeah, this, I'm a force for good. I'm a force for good. I believe in this mission. It's right. We are pushing back the baneful Western imperialist influence throughout Asia and reclaiming Asia for the Asians and sharing our good fortune to be so advanced with the rest of these poor benighted Asians that we're going to bring in to prosperity. And you know what? Sometimes one person could espouse both versions of this discourse in the same day or even at the exact same time. All right? They're not as incompatible as we might think. You can uh, read a Dankichi comic book that has the ugliest racial stereotypes and pejorative representations of people who look different than you. Um, and then you can go out into the field and truly believe that you are doing an altruistic, noble thing and helping everyone out. Um, you know, you can subscribe to two what seem to be antithetical ideologies at the exact same time. And many Japanese did. You read the writings they left behind. You can't say it's all cynical. You can't say it's all hypocritical, or at least not consciously hypocritical. Um, there are a lot of true believers out there who thought, you know what, Japan is the greatest thing that's happened to China, to Asia, uh, in hundreds of years. Okay, Most modern military coups are often like this. The 1911 revolution in China. 
the agents of that revolution were young, educated soldiers who were most tapped in to social Darwinist rhetoric about the baneful influence of the barbaric backward Manchus who were holding China back. And in order to modernize China and bring her into prosperity in the new world and catch up to the Western powers, we need to overthrow this inferior racial group who has hijacked China. Right. Go around, look at the 20th century, whenever you have sort of a major change of government or whatnot, look at the agent of that change. It's not radical, you know, intolerant fascists. Usually they're highly educated and they're buying into what is, you know, at the time, was seen as progressivist discourse. Right. Only we can free China from the West and save Asia for the Asians. And it's the job of the military, the people who actually have you know, guns and weapons and the ability to impose force. It's the job of the military to implement the noble ideals that these cowardly conservative politicians back home are too scared to do. They know we should be advancing and they're too cowardly to do it. They worry too much about what the Westerners are going to think or what the corrupt, feudal Chinese are going to think. We know it's good for them. All right. This frustration was felt in, in the Japanese home islands as well. There were two failed military coups in 1932 and 1936. One of them resulted in a dead Japanese prime minister. Sometimes buildings would be occupied. We don't focus a whole lot on the home islands here, but there was turmoil at home as well between the military and, 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 and the civilian authorities. You're hindering our, our, our you know, rescuing of Asia. The problem is usually no top senior figures would join in to the young, educated officers who were on the front lines throughout the empire. So they said, you know what? We need to implement more drastic measures because if we let them, Tokyo will, um, you know, hinder. They'll throw up obstacles to the, real, the realization of our mission uh, whenever we give them the chance to do so. So what's the proximate uh, event for the Manchurian incident? Uh, the proximate event is news that Tokyo is planning to reach an agreement with the Nationalist Party in Nanjing. I said, Tokyo had uh, uh, promised Chiang Kai-shek that we'll recognize the new Chinese state. We'll recognize that, you know, uh, you're the new government and you're in Nanjing and they're not going to repudiate the old Beijing government. We'll recognize your, your new government as the legitimate government of China. If you allow the status quo in Manchuria to continue, this is what Japan's worried about. In exchange for recognizing Chiang Kai-shek's new government in the South, they say, uh, we want to make sure that you acknowledge that you're not going to kick us out of Manchuria, that the situation that's going on right now will continue for the time being, and nothing's going to drastically alter the status quo. Okay, Tokyo sends a diplomat to Manchuria to tell the Kwantung army leaders, don't do anything to disrupt the pending negotiations with Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party. All right. In hindsight, it's kind of a mistake, because then you've also warned them something big's about to go down, and we think you don't agree with about what, what, with what is about to go down. Uh, therefore, we're warning you, uh, don't do anything to hinder us frustrating your goals. <laughs> right? Uh, you're kind of tipping off your own uh, frontline soldiers that you should act now. If you don't want to see us uh, do something that we know you don't agree with. All right. So the young officers now are saying we need to act before the Tokyo envoy reaches um, China. All right. We cannot accept the same old failed strategy of working through unreliable Chinese intermediaries in Manchuria. And so on September 18th, 1931, they stage a railway bombing on the South Manchurian Railroad, blame the Chinese for it and begin an all out takeover of Manchuria. All right, this is how you manufacture an incident. Who's who, at the time, in hindsight, we know that this was a manufactured bombing. The Japanese bombed their own railroad, okay? But at the time, it's easy, you know, no one knows this stuff very clearly, and all you have to do is deny it. The Japanese say it was the Chinese. The Chinese say it was the Japanese. Um, who knows? No one's on the ground, and everyone's got guns anyway. It's not like you're going to have independent observers. And the, our, the Japanese army says, well, we know what happened. We, we, we need to protect ourselves. And they you know, invade the rest of the land, take over, start shooting things up. Right? There's no doubt it was a conspiracy. Right? But it's unclear now how, to us today, how high the plot went. Was it purely the initiative of young educated officers on the front line? Uh, were senior officers in Manchukuo aware of this? 
Um, did perhaps they have an inkling that something might happen and thought, I'll let it happen because I kind of support it, but I can't officially support it because Tokyo will fire me if they know that I officially condone this. Um, did they not know about it? But when they heard that it happened, they said, uh, I'm not going to do anything to stop it because I kind of sympathize with what's going on. Uh, that's what we don't know. But we absolutely know this was not the Chinese attacking the South Manchurian Railway. That would be pretty stupid. <laughs> uh, you know, they know they're not going to win. Why would you bomb the South Manchurian Railway? You wouldn't do it. So, after six months of, uh, of a very swift war, uh, by March 1932, the state of Manchukuo is declared by the Japanese army. And Tokyo concedes. Tokyo gives in. It doesn't like it. Tokyo is not happy with us. Ministry of Foreign Affairs, not happy at all but you're not going to throw your frontline soldiers under the bus. Not in the international arena. Not with the stakes so high. Now, most of the world condemns Japan's actions, but no one's willing really to do anything about it. Um, the League of Nations, well, they have to do something. They send an agent to investigate. It produces what's known as the Lighten Report, L-Y-T-T-O-N, the Lighten Report. Um, you know, it's all talk and no action. It criticizes what's going on. They traveled through, and they said this is clearly, um, you know, not a... This doesn't make any sense. This isn't a, a liberation of the Manchus from Chinese rule. This is Japan's self-interest, and they invaded Manchuria. Uh, Japan's response to the Lighten Report is to withdraw from the League of Nations. Pretty drastic. Japan tells the League of Nations that in its present state, China, quote, cannot be regarded as an organized state. Therefore, the general principles of international law which govern the ordinary relations between nations have to be considerably modified in their operation as far as China is concerned. And of course, now as well, there's no possibility of rapprochement with the Nationalist Party in Nanjing. All right, you've, 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 you've gone beyond the point of no return. Um, and once you've actually formally taken off uh, Chinese territory, you, uh, you know, that's so close to Beijing as well, uh, there's no possibility of being able to work with them. Uh, you know, Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists were quite hostile to the Russians at this time as well, and would be for a very long time, uh, because they, didn't, they also did not accept that Mongolia had been taken away from them. Um, and, you know, so this is a, a consistent response to the two major uh, national liberation movements, you know, supposedly, that the Russians and the Japanese sponsor on the northern and northeastern borderlands. Uh, the Nationalist Party was consistently uh, refused to acknowledge that that actually was legitimate. And to this day, even after the Nationalist Party fled the Taiwan, uh, they, to this day, an official map of the Republic of China published on Taiwan will include... Mongolia as part of the Republic of China. Okay. Um, now, the commander-in-chief, the commander-in-chief of the Kwantung Army, uh, there still is a Kwantung Army there uh, uh, protecting and helping out the independent state of Manchukuo. Um, he will also double as the ambassador from Japan because now he's an ambassador. you got to maintain all this whole fiction, right? The whole facade that this is an independent state. Uh, so it needs an ambassador now. Uh, so the, the commander-in-chief of the governor general of the Kwantung Army is now also the ambassador from Tokyo. And he confirms all the previous treaties that Japan had with uh, Manchuria, they had with China, uh, all the treaties that give them Liaodong and Kwantung and all of that. Uh, Japan's still going to retain, obviously they're going to retain it, um, you know, because they're the puppet master here. Um, and they retain all of their old privileges. But now the entire of uh, Manchuria is under Japanese rule. The Soviets, the Russians, also see the writing on the wall and they agree to sell the Chinese Eastern Railway to Japan in 1935. Let's at least get some money for this. Uh, Japan has, uh, they've won this round. Uh, they've won this round and uh, we're going to lose our, our political influence in northeastern China. One last thing we need to talk about. What is the ideological content of Manchukuo? All right, it's twofold. There's two major elements we need to understand here. First, it is a Manchu nation state, to a lesser extent also a Mongol nation state, because there also there is a you know population of Mongols who live there as well, but mostly Manchu. All right, it's a Manchu nation state in which we have liberated the Manchus from oppressive Chinese rule. Okay, um, and in that sense, they need to get some substance behind this. We need to find some Manchus. <laughs> The problem with finding Manchus is that ever since the 1911 revolution in China, uh, there were pogroms, there were persecution, there were mass violence against Manchus wherever they could be found. And many tens of thousands of Manchus were slaughtered mercilessly after the 1911 revolution in various cities throughout China. 
That's why the Manchu Imperial Court was willing to negotiate with Yuan Shikai and the Southern Revolutionaries because uh, they were afraid they were all going to get their heads cut off as well if the war dragged on too long. Okay, the result of all this, though, is that for the next couple of decades, really until the 1950s when the communists come to power and adopt sort of a new racial classification policy with sort of affirmative action and whatnot, uh, for, the, for, the, for, the, for the first half of the 20th century after 1911, uh, it's not cool to be Manchu. In fact, it's very dangerous. And many people feared for their lives, and they would try to, uh, you know, give no indication that they had any sort of Manchu background or heritage, um, and just pass themselves off as Han. Uh, so there aren't a whole lot of Manchus. There weren't a whole lot to begin with. Okay, um, uh, but now you're having an even greater problem because you've created a state where its entire justification for existing is that you liberated Manchus from Chinese rule. You better have some Manchus in there. So even though you don't have a whole lot of Manchus on the ground, there are some, but not a, but not a lot. Um, they went to Tianjin to the foreign concessions in Tianjin and uh, made a proposal to Henry Puyi. Who is Henry Puyi? That's the last emperor of the Qing dynasty who came to the throne when he was like two or three years old in 1908. Um, and is forced to abdicate as a young boy. He's only five or six years old. So he, know, he probably has you know, very little memory of uh, life in the Forbidden City. Um, and he was mainly just a, uh, an, a puppet appointee of the Empress Dowager Cixi to make sure she got her preferred candidate on the throne, uh, a pliable male candidate before she died. Um, Pui, after 1911, continued to live in the Forbidden City for another 13 years until he was kicked out by a warlord named Feng Yuxiang, who temporarily occupied Beijing. Um, and uh, after he's kicked out of the Forbidden City in 1924, he goes to Tianjin and lives in the Japanese concession. All right, the Japanese concession of Tianjin. Uh, and he's got a mansion there. And he actually has friendly relations with the Japanese. He's living a high life. Um, and they come to him now and they say, how would you like to be the emperor of Manchukuo? The emperor of the land of the Manchus. You know, you are the most famous Manchu in the world. We need to get you as our figurehead. Um, now, Pui probably thought he was going to have a little more power than he ended up having. And there is signs that he was frustrated later on when he eventually did this. But he agrees. He agrees to become the emperor of Manchukuo. Um, and even though you don't have a whole lot of Manchus on the ground, uh, Pui agreeing to serve as the head, as the head of state, um, even if he becomes later dissatisfied, that, 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 that was a big propaganda victory for the Japanese. It does lend some substance, however shallow, um, that, yeah, we liberated the Manchus from the Chinese. And the most famous Manchu in the world um, is willing to come and uh, uh, you know, acknowledge that fact, uh, buy into our narrative that we're peddling. Now, the other thing, though, is that the majority of the population is Han. How are you going to deal with this? All right. Two ways you're going to deal with this. Um, first, you're going to go back to old Confucian discourse. You're going to say, in order to appeal to the Han population, uh, we're going to peddle at the ground level. We're going to peddle the idea of uh, you know terms and things and ideas that were a constant in Confucian discourse throughout Chinese history. And so in various educational materials, when Han were going to uh, Japanese schools in Manchuria, uh, learning in Chinese, classical Chinese, they would learn, they would be taught, you know, about, oh, the kingly way, you know, things that uh, catch phrases and ideas that were present in Confucian philosophy, Confucian ideology. That would be a lot of the content that you would be exposed to if you were Han living in Manchukuo during the 1930s. Okay. Um, but there is another aspect to this. You need to say, you need to marginalize the, the, the fact that the Han actually dominate Manchukuo, uh, the land of the Manchus, even though you have as your you know, most prominent face a real Manchu, Pui. Uh, nevertheless, demographically, this is overwhelmingly Han. You need to paper over that. The way they papered over that um, was to create a new Manchurian identity that oftentimes included both Han and Manchu. And I've encountered this many times when I'm reading memoirs or things that were uh, written during the 1930s and 1940s in Manchukuo, um, in, in, in uh, you know, Japanese literature, Japanese settlers and whatnot. Um, and they often refer to Manchus or Manchurians. And it's difficult, actually, sometimes to figure out exactly what they mean by these terms. They rarely refer to Chinese, just like in Taiwan, Japanese ruled Taiwan. Uh, the terms China and Chinese almost become sort of like dirty words. Uh, you don't really want to give prominence to a Chinese identity or a Chinese reference point. Um, the new reference point 
in uh, Manchu Kuo, um is going to be Manchu or Manchurian. And when you read literature and things that are produced during this time period, it becomes very apparent that Manchu and Manchurian often refers to Han people by default. With you know, but you're referring to them by a new identity. Oftentimes, Manchurian will be sort of like a new civic identity that can include everyone: Manchus and Han and Mongols and even Japanese settlers who live there. You're all Manchurians now. And then sometimes you'll have Manchu as a separate category that specifically refers to the Manchus who really aren't even there anymore. Um, and then other times Manchu, not Manchurian, Manchu will be used to refer to the Chinese. Okay? Uh, even if in practice you are acknowledging that the population and culture is overwhelmingly Chinese and you're, you know, uh, 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 infusing Confucian discourse into educational materials and state propaganda uh, in order to cater to that, officially you're still very reluctant to talk about uh, a Chinese reference point. And so you're trying there, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't last very long and contradictions always exist. Uh, so it's hard to sort this stuff out. Um, but generally speaking, it seems as though Manchurian um, and Manchu um, didn't have a whole lot to do with actual Manchus. Uh, these were new identities in which you're trying to convince people uh, you're not necessarily Chinese anymore. You're not Japanese anymore to maintain the fiction of what we've done and lend the state substance, cultural substance, and political legitimacy. You need to agree to be a Manchu and then just redefine what Manchu means. It's people who live in Manchu Kuo. All right, that's what it is. Again, this all sounds crazy in hindsight, but that's only because we're dissecting the artificial ideological creations of the, the, the empire that lost on the battlefield in 1945. The winners also do equally transparently self-serving things as well and very shallow artificial ideologies that seem crazy if we were to dissect them with the same rigor that we dissect the ideologies of the loser. But victory on the battlefield tends to naturalize your self-serving agenda. Okay, that's it for Manchukuo. Next time, let's get away from war and conquest and racism, and let's talk about technology, telegraphs, underwater cables, the history of Japanese cinema throughout the empire, what the Japanese thought of Fantasia, doesn't that sound like a lot more fun than all this heavy violence, discrimination, and Machiavellian political machinations? If so, then please join me for Technology and Film in the Japanese Empire in episode 50 of Beyond Huaxia. Music